Good morning. So this week is Palm Sunday. And actually, um, so traditionally in church, this begins sort of like Holy Week. So this would be the first day uh, of this seven-day kind of countdown to Easter. Uh, and I got to tell you, Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry as it's called in some places, uh, which I think is very ironic, and we'll go into that in just a second, uh, is, is my favorite theological day of the year. There's so much packed into this day, uh, and most of it is just around the idea of protest. And I love me a good protest. I don't know why, but like if a protest is done really well, like I, I just I get lit up. Uh, just the other like week, uh, Nick, who goes here, uh, came to me. They had just gone into London, uh, and he said he was there, and they were protesting Brexit and everything that's going on there. And and a guy literally stood on top of a train station. Uh, and caused the entire train like like system within London, and then that like echoed into the greater island that is Britain, uh, and shut everything down for about three hours. Just one person was able to do that, and like yes, that's super annoying. And like for anybody that wanted to miss a train, but in my mind, I was like, what an effective protest! That is so awesome that he was able to shut down the entire thing. Uh, when I was about like 16, 15. Um, I've always had a bit of a rebellious streak, and uh, I went to a John Mayer concert, which is not that rebellious, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, but I'm going to a John Mayer concert, and uh, we're, my friends and I are going in, and out front there are these people that have these giant banners, and they are picketing uh, the John Mayer concert. And it just so happens that they're Christians, and so they're lovely people, and they're just out there, and they're picketing John Mayer. And literally, like the one thing I wanted to say was like, guys, you go to so many other concerts. Like, there's not a lot to work with here. Uh, but something in me just, like, like got enraged. And I think it was, I was really the only, I grew up in uh, all over the place, but primarily Marin County. And Marin County is a, a very, very, very unchurched, unchristian place. In fact, uh, it's less so than here. Here in the city of Santa Monica, it's 1.5% of people uh, that would consider themselves churched Christians or, like, actively involved in a church community. There, it's 1%. So it's just a half percent lower. Uh, and so I was always trying to kind of like, like do apologetics for my faith. Like when my friends and everything would call me crazy and I would be really involved in youth group. And I just, I, I always wanted people to see Jesus and the church in a light that I just didn't really see it being portrayed. And in fact, I saw it being portrayed a lot like these protesters all of the time. And so I'm with this group of friends, and then there's these guys, and I'm 16, so I've got nothing to lose. <laughs> so I walk up to them. I didn't like make a big deal out of it with my friends, like, well, I'm going to shut this down right now. Uh, but I walked up to them, and being a Bible nerd, uh, I began to berate them with biblical questions uh, that they could not answer. So it was the funniest thing in the whole world. I'd be like, do you guys know that all of their signs said repent, turn away, turn and burn, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I, I asked them, and this is the, the most brazen and crazy thing I've ever done to, to this day uh, in my life. But I asked them, I was like, do you know what the Hebrew root uh, for repent, the word that's on all your signs means? And they were like, uh, yeah, it means you need to turn to God. You need to say, I'm sorry, you need to go. And I was like, no, the actual word is more like turn around. It's teshuva. It's to actually turn around and return to where you came from. And I truly believe that's what you guys should do. <laughs> and, so, and then they just got, they got really flustered because they're just like little 16-year-old kid just like standing ground. Uh, and I don't want to take full credit for this, but I did return after the concert and they were no longer there. So I don't know what that is. I don't know if I did anything. Uh, they probably just left because the concert was over. But anyway, to this day, it's one of the most victorious like uh, moments of my life. So I love... I love a good protest, and, but there's a difference between a good protest and a poor protest. And I think as Christians, we are known all too well for our poor protests. 
for ineffective protest, which is so crazy. It's cuckoo to me because in the Christian tradition, Jesus is actually the master at this. He is a master troublemaker. He is a master at troubling the traditions of the day. Gandhi himself called Jesus the greatest resistor the world has ever seen. That's the protester that we're following. And in fact, Jesus' whole mission and whole life is just one giant protest after another using stories called parables, or even if he's not telling stories, he's enacting these parables. He's practically doing street theater, is what we're gonna find out as we study this, this day and this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's always pushing the boundaries, and he's doing it in crazy, awesome, creative, beautiful ways that cause people to see the world differently after he shows up, to literally change the mood in the room. You saw something one way, a paradigm, a normal paradigm, and when Jesus shows up, there's a new paradigm. There's a new way to look at things. And he does that through incredible, mind-blowing protests in which people's minds are genuinely changed and they're not just being shouted at. There is no instance of Jesus yelling at someone in Scripture to try and change their mind. He does it with stories. He does it lovingly. He does it through healing. He does it in gorgeous, gorgeous ways. And all too often, we dumb this message down to a point where it just becomes a shouting match and then all we have is Twitter and it's just back and forth and it's no good for anyone involved. I truly do not believe that anyone's mind has been changed because of something that was said over a keyboard, right? Think about the times in your lives you actually shifted your thinking on something or you came to a new paradigm or a new reality. It was usually through loving relationship or through tragedy or through joy or something you experienced inside yourself that caused you to shift the way you live your life. And if we ever hope to mend this world or to bring more of this thing that Jesus calls the kingdom, which we're going to be talking a whole lot about today, then we really need to learn how to creatively protest and creatively invite this revolution in because that's the tradition that we sit in. And we're going to unpack all of that. So let's start at the scripture and then I'm going to pray for us. Uh, and we will, we will start sort of from the beginning. By the way, I usually have about like seven pages when I write my sermon out. This one was about 14, so I really had to zip it. So we'll just be here for an extra hour. It's totally cool. We'll be fine. Um, no, no, no. We skipped it. Uh, so uh, let me read the scripture. This is where we're going to start. We're going to start. This, this is one of the only gospel stories that happens in all four of the gospels. And there's little minor tweaks here and there uh, in this story, but largely it remains the same. And so there's this awesome kind of truth there that if it happens across the four things, then it's kind of the closest thing that we know. Oh, Jesus probably was literally on this. Like he was saying these words because each gospel writer chose it and said, this can't be missed. It must be a part. And so I want to start in Mark, which is actually the first gospel that we have written down. Uh, and then we'll move on from there. But basically, uh, here's where we begin. Here we are. Uh, it says, Mark 11, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Please notice, Jesus does not come to Jerusalem as servant. Jesus does not come to Jerusalem as anything else. He comes as a king. Everything in this verse is going to point to kingship, to royalty, and everything in this verse is going to flip the idea of what royalty and kingship really means. And especially for the early reader and especially for the people in Jerusalem at the time when Jesus goes in there. We're going to come back to this verse and we'll unpack it, but I just want to read it so we have that um, kind of under our belt. So uh, it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So we're getting a really clear picture of where they are. They are pinpointing for us geographically. Here's where Jesus stands. 
And he said, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, say the Lord needs it and will be sent back here shortly. I'm in charge of the slides today, so I can't say next slide. Um, and they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied it uh, at a doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying a colt? They answered as Jesus had told them uh, to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Now, this is really fun. We'll do this right now. Uh, we won't wait till later. What is this Sunday called one more time? Palm Sunday. What is it that they've cut? Branches. Now, what's really interesting about this is Jerusalem is a major city center. Think of a huge metropolitan area. And yes, there would have been branches and there would have been palm trees and leaves, but this describes a group of people that aren't taking these branches from the city, but they're bringing them with them from their rural fire, uh, farming communities that are around. So what we see here is not the wealthy ruling class laying down these branches. We're actually seeing the fellow pilgrims who are coming to this city for a thing called Passover and for all of these religious feasts. And so what we're seeing in this is an outside-in movement. It's saying Jesus is bringing the people that have been really, really oppressed by this current government and this current system of taxing and all this stuff, and he's bringing them in. And what did they bring with them? They brought with them branches because that's their world and that's what they're living in. Uh, spread branches and uh, they had cut in the fields. So they went ahead and shouted, uh, and those who followed him shouted, and this is where we get the famous, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, something very interesting about this, too, is a lot of translations translate that this shouted. But what this is, this verse, is a part of a sacred song, and a sacred set of songs called the Hillel, in which they would sing at Passover. So it's very possible, again, creative protest, it's very possible these people are not just shouting, but they may be singing together. So imagine this, you've got a group of pilgrims coming in, singing unified, shouting at the same time, Hosanna. This has huge, huge implications for what's going to happen next, uh, but we're going to save those for later. Uh, Blessed is he coming in the name, uh, uh, the kingdom coming of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the triumphal entry. This is the moment where things are really, really, really going to heat up for Jesus and his followers. You see, from here, we've been following Jesus on a journey, this entire gospel from Mark 1 to here. And so far, Jesus' journey has been sort of zigzagging, being caught in different scenarios and following different scenarios, but always having a genuine path with an end date. And where that was, was Jerusalem. For Jesus, the whole point of all of this ministry and going to these other places and bringing these people in is to arrive at Jerusalem because this is the big kahuna. This is where it's all going to go down. This is the band touring small little venues until they finally play the Staples Center. This is the main event in history for Jesus. Everything that he's done in his life has led up to this entry. And so what we have to understand is that he would have planned this out to a T. And his 
Weapon of choice is something called a remez. And a remez is this beautiful thing where he's dropping hints and lines that are literally going to have the people completing the thoughts in their head without him having to say a thing. He's going to help change their minds by them actually transforming their thinking by themselves. This is where we get the expression, mind blown. <laughs> and Jesus, like a spiritual ninja, is going to do that in this triumphal entry. But first, we must talk a bit about the poor protest. Um, so. Uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, Chelsea and I are walking uh, in our neighborhood, and our neighborhood is a, uh, it's just a hotbed for birds, limes, jumps, you name the scooter company, they are everywhere. Uh, I personally love these scooters, even though I've broken my arm on one of them, um, and that's true, but I, I still love them, and I have a great respect for like the technology that's happening, and I understand the argument that this has gotten way out of hand and it's too crazy and they're all over the place, but oftentimes when people are really, really, really angry about this stuff, <laughs> There's a lot more going on inside them. To take that out on a bird is really an interesting thing. But anyway, we see this like kind of older gentleman, and he's walking towards this flock of birds, if you will. And they're just on the side there, and he's crossing the street. And you could just see, we're, we're coming kind of towards him. We can see him from a, a ways. You can see in his face, something is not right. And he's really focused on these birds. And, and he walks closer, and he's, he's like kind of like surveying the birds, getting a real close look. And then, I mean, and he seemed like a perfectly nice like gentleman, just like a wonderfully dressed human being. And he comes up, and he just takes one of the birds. And I'm like, oh, he's going to hop on the bird. Does not hop on the bird. He takes the bird above his head and slams it into the other birds, causing this chain reaction of about 10 birds to all hit the ground. And the first one literally snaps. <laughs> And Chelsea and I are going, cross the street the other way. Like, do not engage this individual. Something is off here. Um, but I don't know if you've ever looked this up or you've ever like, thought about this. One of those bird scooters, if you buy it from Segway or you buy it on Amazon, is about $500. Now, the companies that are working for this are owned by like Uber and Lyft, and then Bird is this enormous company. They have warehouses filled with these scooters. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of these scooters. Do you think that that gentleman Chucking a scooter into 10 other scooters is going to matter to Bird at all? <laughs> Think of this as Bird as empire <laughs> and this man trying to rage against the empire. There are far better ways to rage against it than to try and snap one scooter. To give you an example, my hometown of San Francisco uh, did it this way. They actually set up a protest an organized protest in which they rounded up, because they were fed up about all sorts of things in the tech world. I, when I lived there, it was not the same place. Within 10 years, that city is just overturned into one of the most like just expensive places to live. And then just there's there's Yahoo, there's there's Twitter, there's Facebook, everyone is there. And all of the young people are living there that are working in this, and it's caused this housing kind of deprivation thing that's that's really, really harmful for the city. And so people are losing their homes and all that kind of stuff. And so people were protesting and they zeroed in on these scooters because like Honestly, in San Francisco, those things aren't going to make it up those hills. It, it's a dumb idea anyway. So they get to the scooters, and they, they round them all up. Uh, and then they thought, well, let's just not try and take down one company, but what could we do to halt and stall the entire tech universe? Sort of like that man at the bus station just shutting everything down for three hours. And what they figured out they could do is, well, why don't we find, there are these buses, the Google buses, the Yahoo buses, the, the whatever, you name it, the tech company has a bus that will pick up their employees and will take them into the East Bay or wherever it is that their offices are. And so these buses are everywhere, and they're a big nuisance to the people of the uh, the people in the city as well. So they thought, what if we trapped 
the buses by creating an encircle of scooters so that the bus couldn't pass by. And then to add insult to injury, we're going to wear hazmat suits and put up a banner. And it looked like this. Anticlimactic. And it looked like this. <laughs> right? Now, what's remarkable about this is it worked. San Francisco still does not have scooters. To my knowledge, there could be another company that swooped in there at this point. But that sent a message to the city, and it was creative enough, and it was wonderful enough, and it was crazy enough that it actually worked. You see the difference between a good and a bad protest, right? Protests are so necessary. We need them. There are times in our lives where we have to stand up for a greater reality and a greater truth in ourselves. And protests need to happen when there is a problem, when there is a distinct, nameable problem within the system that we can name and we can say, I know that there's a better way, and I know that we can get there, but we have to have a paradigm shift. We have to have a new revolution in order to change people's minds and in order to get there. Let's take our own example, our own, our own kind of church, capital C, right now. Where do we have problems? Well, we have, we have problems, uh, and it's come in the news and under fire lately from a lot of things, uh, that the megachurch world uh, has become a little too big for its bridges, and maybe the pastors uh, are spending a little bit too much on their clothing. Now, if you know what I'm about to get to, I've been trying to work this Instagram account since I found out about it like two months ago. Every sermon, I'm like, maybe I could fit it here. This one finally works. So there's this, there's this uh, account called Preachers and Sneakers, and it is brilliant. Um, what they've done, I don't know if you can see it here, uh, this is uh, a picture of this, usually it's the shoes here, actually I think I have a shoe one, let's get to a shoe one first. Um, this is the picture, uh, and it's brilliant. All this guy does is he takes a picture of the preacher, and then he zooms in on the sneaker, and then he knows a lot about sneakers, obviously, and then he'll post the price of the sneaker, and here's where it's so, so good and so mind-blowingly brilliant. He'll never say anything bad about the preacher. Like, he will never try and, like, shout at him, shut him down, like, berate him for buying those shoes. In fact, every single post is very congratulatory. <laughs> this one says, Ron Carpenter in those unis, uh, yeah, I'm going to blow this, UNC vibes, uh, Virgin Blah, which is the maker of the sneaker, out there making sure the whole team eats, right? So we have all these different pictures. Here's a picture of uh, Judah Smith uh, and his wife in, in Gucci material, and uh, they literally will put the price uh, of what's going on in the real Gucci gang, Judah Smith and Chelsea Smith stepping out with it clean, right? So they're not saying anything terrible, but this went viral overnight because what it did was it unlocked something within the general community that went, wait, wait, that's not okay. <laughs> How are these preachers affording that clothes and why are they spending that much money on their clothes? And the brilliant part about this, right? There are two ways that we could shed light on this situation, and one would be to write an angry Twitter or an angry Facebook post that would just say, like, I can't respect blah blah because I know how much their clothes cost. How far is that going to get you? Almost nowhere. That's a blip on the radar. But if we can make it hilarious, if we can shine light on something and also do it in a way that's not discouraging, not berating, just shedding light on the situation, then what we've got is a nonviolent revolution, <laughs> right? Three pastors had to change their Instagram handles because of the blowback from what this guy was posting. Isn't that incredible? That's crazy. And I think there's going to be a lot of preachers around the world who are going to think twice about the kicks they're wearing. Guys, I'm in Converse. If anyone wants to take a picture, go for it. Uh, but see, that's a brilliant protest. That actually sheds light on something. It actually means something. 
It's not just screaming, it's not just shouting. And what it does is it begins to work in us and it begins to change our mind about a fundamental truth, right? And that is the difference between deconstruction, which is a very hot word right now. And I think what people are actually meaning by deconstruction is more like destruction. There is a fundamental difference between deconstruction and destruction. And a lot of times in our faith or in our protest or in the way that we want to get across an idea, our go-to mode is destruction, especially in sort of more progressive circles and churches. Like they're, they're, people are always going like, well, deconstruct, deconstruct, tear that apart, leave it behind, get out of there. But deconstruction is profoundly beautiful. It's not a destructive act. When you deconstruct something, think about how someone wants to fix a car. They would deconstruct the engine, not so that they could just tear it apart and say, this car is dumb. <laughs> no. When they're taking it apart and they're looking at each piece and they're seeing how it all fits together, what they're doing very lovingly and very caring is, is they are looking for a better way to put that back together. They're looking to understand what makes it hum, what makes it interesting, what makes it beautiful, how it works, always with the intention of putting it back together. And maybe, just maybe, in really beautiful instances, you can put it back together even in a better way. That's what deconstruction is. That's what good protest is. But destruction is just burning down the barn and leaving it there. Saying, I don't like this anymore. It's hurtful to me, so I'm going to burn it down and I'm going to walk away. And in Jesus' movement, he's constantly deconstructing what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests and all these religious leaders are doing, but he does it so lovingly to them because he understands, no, you, yeah, I get it. I see where you're coming from. I see how you love this tradition. I see how you want to take this so seriously. I see how you want to actually like, give your life over to God and do that, and I think that's amazing. But guys, I'm here to show you that there's a better way. Let me take this apart so you can see how it works. Let me take this apart so you can hold it in a different way and really have it mean something. That's all he wanted to do. He didn't want those people to just up and leave. He didn't want them to quit religion. All he wanted to do was say, no, 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 no. I get it, but I think, I think that we could be doing this in a different way. What he does in every one of his parables and enacted parables, I love it. Whenever he talks about the kingdom, he'll start out uh, by saying things like, the kingdom of God looks like this. The kingdom of God is like dot, dot, dot. And we have to think of Jesus in almost every interaction that he's in. If you put that line before his dialogue, just it flips it in such a most like, gorgeous way. Before he heals a blind man, the kingdom of God is like. Before he raises Lazarus from the dead, the kingdom of God is like. Before he sits down at the table with tax collectors and sinners, the kingdom of God is like. And before he sits down and infuriates both sides by eating in both places, by sitting down with the Pharisees who are going like, what the heck? Right? He's constantly trying to create a new paradigm. Thomas S. Kuhn, I believe, it's Kuhn or Kuhn, uh, wrote a book called The um, Process of Scientific Revolutions in uh, 1962. Uh, and he argued for the first time, he really, he didn't invent the word new paradigm or he didn't invent the term new paradigm, uh, but he really harped on how revolutions in science happen. And his argument was, for a long time, people believed that in a scientific revolution, so it, like Copernicus and the sun, right? We have something where we think that everything's revolving around us, and then someone fundamentally shifts the whole idea and says, no, 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 actually, we're revolving around something else. And then they go ahead and they like kill him for it. But anyway, moving on from there, we have a fundamental shift. There was a normal paradigm 
There was, there was an enacted way of thinking of things. That's the way things were. And then someone comes along and shifts something so drastically that we can no longer look at the world the same way again. And every single parable and every single enacted parable that Jesus, that Jesus is uh, living out or saying is causing us to think in a brand new way, a fundamental shift in thinking and in reality. We talked about this a little bit before, but it's one of my favorite things. It's by a writer named Walter Wink, uh, and it's called Third Way Thinking, and he talks about it in terms of nonviolence, but he actually sheds light on the brilliance of Jesus. So check this out. There are three sort of nonviolent resistance things we can point to uh, when we look at the life of Jesus and the way that he protests and the way he enacted protests. And, and the first one is the very famous, uh, if someone strikes you on your cheek, turn the other, the other cheek, right? Turn the other cheek. And we look at that and we say, okay, so we're supposed to be passive. Uh, and, and when someone enacts violence on us, we'll just turn the other cheek and we'll let them strike us. But with a little bit of cultural like history and everything, that passage is far more resistant than it seems. And yes, it is nonviolent, but it creates a new reality. And here's how it does that. If you were a Roman soldier, uh, your right hand, if you hit someone with a closed fist, it was a sign of dignity. So if you hit someone with a closed fist, it meant you were in a fair fight. I'm going to fight you like an equal. And that was just the way the Roman soldiers worked. And so if you were hit with a closed fist, you were hit as an equal. If you were not an equal, say you were a Jewish person in that reality and you were part of their colonial system and, and they could do whatever they really pleased with you, uh, if they were to strike you, which would be a sign of just dishonor and disgrace, if they were to strike you, they would strike you with an open palm. But interestingly enough, they would not strike you with this side. That's still dignity. <laughs> they would strike you with the back side, which we is just universally kind of made its way through history as like, that's never a good thing, right? To be backhanded is to be called you are not an equal. You are a slave or you are a servant or you are nothing compared to me. That was the sign of the day. And they would only hit with the right hand because the left hand in ancient society without toilet paper was reserved for one thing. I'm just going to let your imaginations go that direction. So anyway, you had the right hand and they would strike. And so what Jesus is saying when he says, turn the other cheek, is if I am to strike you, please, your pastor's not going to strike you, but if I am to strike you uh, and I do a backhand across your face, and that's one way, you would have to turn your face Say, hit me again, and when they would strike you on that side, what would they have to use? The open palm. You can hit me, but you hit me as an equal. No longer are you going to look down upon me, and all of a sudden, the Roman soldier is forced to fundamentally think about this person in a new way. And look, all of these are not permanent solutions. Jesus is just trying to like enact some really awesome new ways of thinking that might work one time, but it shifts the paradigm. All of a sudden, it's not just about the violence, it's about dignity, it's about humanity, right? Another fun one uh, is if you're sued, which would happen all the time uh, in, in this community because people were just downright poor, and so it became this huge feudal system of like, I'll sue you, you sue me, I'll sue you. And, and what would happen is you get down to like, you don't own any more property, all you have are the clothes on your back, which are actually incredibly valuable. Garments in that day were akin to like buying a home. Like they were very expensive, they were really, really important. And so if someone sued you for your cloak, Jesus would say, don't just give them your shirt, give them the other shirt, the undershirt, the cloak underneath it. And at first you're like, wow, that's kind of weird. Like, why would I give up two different things? But the really beautiful part about this is in that culture, uh, nudity was shameful, but not in the way that you would think. N the shame, and this is, remember, this is a deeply 
integrated shame versus, uh, versus uh, honor society. And so if you, if you were the naked one and someone saw you, and this goes back to Genesis where his sons see him naked and then there's a whole freak out and they're, they're ashamed because they saw their father naked, right? In this culture, if you saw someone naked, the shame was on you, right? So you were now to blame and you needed to go atone for something because you had seen someone naked. So a brilliant protest move in that day would just be stroll through the streets naked. But anyway, when Jesus is saying this in the courtroom system, if they sue you for that, okay, now take this one. Now the shame is all on you guys. And they're really going to think twice before suing someone for their cloak again, right? These are incredibly creative, nifty ways of thinking. That Jesus isn't just trying to go like, no, just be passive. Just let it go. Just let it rush over you. No, he's saying like, no. There are so many creative ways to get them in here. We just need to think about this in a different way. There's one more. There's three of them. What was the third one? Uh, there's the... It'll come to me at some point in the sermon, I'll get back to it. But there's just, there's beautiful third way thinking there, right? There's a new paradigm that's being introduced. And so in this great triumphal entry, Jesus is doing this literally just all over the place. He is creating a brilliant way to not only protest the current powers that be, but to protest the current religious powers that be and to change both of their minds. And one is going to take hundreds of years to come around, but the other one begins to unravel immediately. Now, in Jesus' day, uh, in this day, this triumphal entry, this was uh, the festival of the first fruits was around the corner. You had Passover coming up. You had a, a huge, just fever pitch in Jerusalem. Historians will look at that and they'll say about 200,000 plus people would come into the city uh, during this festival. So you have a city, you have a place that is at max capacity. That's why Jesus is staying in, that, in Bethany because it's outside the city because there's probably, again, like his, the beginning of his journey, no room at the inn, right? So we come and there's no room because the place is just so super, super crowded. Now, imagine this as the empire. You have Herod, who's sort of the ruling kind of king it be, who kind of calls on to, uh, to the emperor and he's, he represents Rome there. But there's also this guy named Pilate and Pilate is, is there to keep the peace. And Pilate's a big major character. He's going to come in on Easter. We're going to talk a lot about Pilate. But Pilate was a governor of that sort of region. And his one job, the one job was, hey, you have a whole tumultuous sort of system going on here. They can't revolt, and you need to be in charge of that. Because these, these pesky people, these Israelites, these people, they have this real sort of like bend towards revolution. Like for some reason, they just always want to revolt because they have this God that they believe truly will deliver them. And so, ooh, that's dangerous. We need to keep that at bay. And so what is Passover? Passover, if we go back to Exodus, is the celebration of when God takes his people out of slavery and into freedom. And so they would all descend upon Jerusalem, 200,000 plus people, plus the regular population of Jerusalem, and they would celebrate this huge victory over a foreign oppressor and power, and they would sing songs of revolution, and they would rah, 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 rah. Now, if you're pilot and this holiday comes around once a year, is this a great day for you? <laughs> no. Because what happens when people are, are partying, right, and they're, they're, they're with their people, and we're all talking revolution? We're all talking about that time that God took us out, and we're all expecting this Messiah, this Christ, this king, this warrior king to show up, and we're going to have our freedom. And so Pilate's looking at this going, whoo-hoo, this is not a great holiday for me. So what's Pilate do? To keep a people at bay, 
Pilate, the week before the Passover festival, would have a little festival of his own. In fact, a little parade of his own. Uh, so this is a picture of the temple at that point in history. <laughs> I told you guys, I really had to cut this down. So this is a picture of the temple. Uh, if you can see it, I know it's a little grainy, but here's, here's the actual temple, the Holy of Holies, right in the center there. What's really interesting is when Herod the Great built this thing, uh, the, the Jewish people had a very specific sort of outline for what it had to be and the specifications for the exact size. And Herod said, that's way too small for what I'm trying to do. So I'll create that temple for you in the middle of this, but then we're going to create like three outer courts. And we're going to have this grand thing. Uh, and so it became this massive, massive building it was never supposed to be. But it was the, the center of all religious life. And in the center of that center was the real temple, the Holy of Holies, in which only certain people could walk into. So this shadowy building way up here uh, isn't just some normal building or office building on the side. What the Roman government said was, sure, we'll build you your temple. We're going to keep you uh, in love with your God. We'll let you have your religious ideals because they're smart rulers. And they're like, we can let them have a little wiggle room here. But let's go ahead and build a barracks on the side of this bad boy. So that's where the Roman army would live. That's where Pilate would have his office. When Jesus is bound and dragged into Pilate's thing, that's the building that he would have been dragged into. And so looming over the temple as people would enter, you would see the empire. Meaning like, yeah, you can celebrate, you can have your festivals, but remember, we're right here. And that was on the west side of the temple mount. The west side of the temple mount. Remember, the temple is on a mountain, and that's very important. Uh, west side of the Temple Mount. And so Pilate would come in from the west side of the city, and he would come with this grand procession reminding everybody just how powerful the Roman Empire was. They would ho hoist these giant flags. They would, they would put up iron eagles, which was their gold eagle, which was their symbol, right? This is like this huge unpacking of like, oh my gosh, look at how much the Roman Empire has done. And then he would literally march an army through and they would be side by side and they would have these massive shields and they would have all of their weapons showing. And Pilate, very importantly, would be riding on a massive horse with a sword drawn. And they would go through the city and they would just tell everyone, don't you dare even think about it. <laughs> if you have any sort of notion of revolution, it's not happening. We will crush you outright. Look how powerful we are. So Pilate enters from the west. And so Jesus, with his revolution, which side do you think he enters the city from? Jesus enters the temple and the city, the Mount of Olives and Bethany and Bethpage, which is to the east, which is where we get Easter, which means to rise. So Pilate's parade, this protest is to keep the normal paradigm at bay, to say, no, this is the way it's always going to be. And he enters from the West. The sun is set on your time. This is my time. And Jesus enters in this triumphal entry on a donkey, the opposite of the horse, the symbol for peace. And he enters from the East as if to say, no, 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 no. A new kingdom is rising. It's arisen. See how nerdy and beautiful this stuff is? I mean, it's like crazy. So let's unpack uh, what that actual Jesus' parade looks like, Jesus' revolution looks like. And so we'll, we'll go line by line through Luke here, because uh, I want to show you just how brilliant Jesus is. Uh, and if you're wondering how the heck he thought all this stuff out and how he was able, he's going to quote like numerous scriptures in here. Just remember he's God. <laughs> so he's got a little leg up. Uh, and he is the word become flesh, right? So he's pulling from all of the story uh, in this triumphant entry. So it says, uh, this, is, this is the version in Luke, it says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, so again, we've got that, um, that place, 
at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Now, this is important, and it's going to come up a bunch. It seems that Jesus was a really, really big fan of this minor prophet named Zechariah. Uh, this guy, uh, or, or is it Zechariah? Yeah, that's the one. Um, it, this guy had a big influence on Jesus in a huge way because uh, Jesus keeps pointing back to this one story in scripture where this minor prophet who was the son of a high priest whose whole job was to try and bring the priesthood back and the temple back. And he does this in, in, and he uses apocalyptic language, like end of the world kind of language and stuff. Uh, and so Jesus is feeding off this story. And at one point in, in Zechariah, it, it says that at the time of revolution, where the Messiah comes from, will be on the hill of the Mount of Olives. This is sort of the scene. So Jesus intentionally goes to this place and this place in geography. And the reason that is, is because there were a whole bunch, there was this belief in Judaism that when the Messiah came, if you were a good Jewish person, you would be raised from the dead. And so when you were raised from the dead, you would then return to the temple. And the Mount of Olives is a very easy commute. So a lot of people would just choose to be buried there so that when they come back to life, shorter walk. <laughs> right? So th they had this hill and there would have been all of these stones on it which are gravestones. And so Jesus begins in the graveyard. He begins in this really poetic, charged moment in which even his disciples would go like, whoa, buddy, you sure you want to start from here? <laughs> and he's like, yes, get me a donkey. So he moves on. Um, uh, and he says, uh, as he approached Bethany to the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, say the Lord needs it. Now, this is really fascinating. That's military language. A Roman soldier was allowed to commandeer your animal for a mile. Oh, that's the go the extra mile part. We're not going to go there. Ask me about it later. Uh, so they were allowed to take you a mile, or they were allowed to take your animal, just commandeer it, and it's going to carry their load for a mile. It was a royal act. A king could do this, or a soldier could do this. And so Jesus is setting up a political, military-style revolution, and he's saying, if someone asks you who needs it, tell them the Lord has sent you. Meaning, this, I'm enacting my powers as a king. I will take that donkey, and I'll bring it back, but I'm enacting my powers as a king. And so, uh, let's move on here. Um, and the donkey is incredibly, incredibly relevant. So a lot of times, uh, we'll always point back, and this is a classic sort of Palm Sunday sermon thing, uh, we'll point back to the verse that this donkey matters in. Uh, this is what's called a remez. This is a hint. So this is Jesus riding in on a donkey, and it would send a message to everyone going like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that verse in Zechariah, oh my gosh, that story. He's riding in on a donkey. And what does that verse say? Uh, it says, uh, the coming of Zion's king Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on a fowl of a donkey. A lot of donkey language in there. But basically, he's coming in humble peace. And some people would end there, but for Jesus, this is a double remez. This guy is also doing a remez, and he's pointing back to the story about Solomon. And Solomon's brother tried to usurp the throne from him as, as King David was dying. And so King David said, no, 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 no. This is my heir. Send him on my donkey so that people know that this is the rightful heir. And so Solomon rolls up on David's donkey, and then you have a proper king, right? So it's, it's loaded layers deep like a theological onion. He's just exploding like their minds right now. Uh, and most people stop right there at 9-9, but the verse that comes after that is so important in the Zechariah story, and it says this. This is the message that Jesus has come to proclaim. It says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, which is a, a really convenient way to talk about the Jewish people. It's a tribe. 
and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will extend his, uh, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. What is Jesus saying here as he enters the city from the east? He's saying, I am coming for an anti-war protest. I am coming to break those weapons. A chariot is a, a symbol of war. I'm coming to take away the chance of violent revolution. And I'm here to say that this will be a peaceful kingdom, that this will be a grander revolution. And so moving on to that story, it says those uh, who were sent ahead went and found it just as they had told them. We're back to the donkey. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Again, an act in kingship. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Uh, when he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Again, these are the pilgrims coming in, and they say, Blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, the nervous religious folk, this is getting out of hand, they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And watch what Jesus says. Again, Remez loaded, hinted all over the place. He says this, I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. Where were the stones before? They're on the Mount of Olives. They're being seen, and so he points to those graves, and he says, if they're quiet, well then, the stones will cry out. And to the Pharisees, that's a hint, that's a mind blown, that in their mind, they're going, oh wait, people rising from the dead, oh shoot, oh I know that verse, oh no, you're that king, or at least you're saying, you're that king. Jesus is brilliantly painting a picture for all the religious people uh, that he is this king. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, even if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And so when Luke was written, it was written after this temple gets destroyed and an entire religious identity has been wiped out. Because you see, this temple was not just a fun place to go on a pilgrimage. It was where God lived. It was the center of all religious identity. It's where you became pure. It's where you would go once a year for your pilgrimage. It was your home. And it had been wiped away by the Roman Empire because the Jewish people then decided to do a violent revolution. And when Jesus weeps here, he's not just weeping for the destruction of that temple. He's going... If you, go to, if you would only pay attention to how I'm doing things right now, you would see that nonviolence is the only way to move forward. And you're going to return to that violent way, and they're going to crush you. But there is a better way. Later on in this verse, Jesus says, if you have faith, just a smidgen of faith, you can say to that mountain, you'll even fall into the sea, or you have faith to move mountains. What's on a mountain? The temple's on a mountain. In fact, Herod had built a mountain. He built a mountain as a stadium. And what Jesus is really saying in that moment is if you have just a tiny bit of faith and if you can look at this in a new creative way and you can really solve this problem, you can do greater things than Herod can. You can do greater things than this empire can if you only trust me. Let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful for all the layers and all of the intricate, uh, wonderful parts in your word and in your story. And I thank you for this day as we are, um, man, as we are just uh, steeped in the story of Christianity. 
in the, the best part of the story we have this tell, which is coming this Sunday, in which we proclaim resurrection, and we get to celebrate uh, the rebirth of your son that's rising from the dead. So I just pray over our week, over this holy week, may we take time to truly mark out where we are in this story. Uh, may we take time to pause on Friday to worship and to reflect. May we sit in that weird space of Saturday and then may you bring us back here on Sunday for a celebration of the greatest truth and reality that there is, which is that your son is Jesus the Christ, that he is that king and that his revolution looks different. Amen. All right, guys. Sorry for that real nerdy.